this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben, you're listening to my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. I don't know why I always say that, as though you don't know which podcast you're listening to. I I know you know which podcast this is. It's uh, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. But um, anyway, welcome along to episode 124, on which I have a chat with wonderful Michal Ivanovsky. I would like to do a bit of housekeeping first, though, if you would bear with me just for a few minutes. Don't skip. First of all, in case you missed the previous announcements, there is now an exclusive members-only episode available on the Wednesdays between these free ones featuring additional bonus content that would otherwise be unavailable to you and you can access those episodes over at pod.fan p-o-d.f-a-n if you sign up as a small voice member for a mere five pounds a month or whatever that is in your currency I think that's six and a half bucks or something if you're one of the supporters who already donates five pounds per month but you've not yet cancelled that donation and joined up at pod.fan, then please go ahead and do that. If you donate £3 a month to support the show's ongoing production, please also go over to pod.fan and sign up there instead as a supporter, or increase that donation to £5 a month to become a member. And it's worth saying now, without you people, there would be no podcast. It's that simple, because I couldn't afford the time and energy it takes to do this without at least a small amount of income as a result. And it is a small amount at the moment. Yeah, I get a little bit from my lovely sponsors, but without a humongous audience, that is never going to be more than a fairly nominal amount. So I'm hoping that if enough people join the member program at £5 a month, It'll be worth the extra work involved to basically produce an episode per week. If that doesn't happen, then, you know, I'll have to bin it. But let's be optimistic and uh, see how things pan out in the next few months. Speaking of sponsors, this episode of A Small Voice is brought to you by the wonderful Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography, to select a first edition monograph that is a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and print with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. Past curators of the uh, book of the month have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, Andrew Modica, Todd Heido, Ron Jude and many others. All that along with members-only pricing in their online bookstore and more makes the Charcoal Book Club the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. If you like this podcast and you're a regular listener, please do leave a glowing five-star rating and a brief review on iTunes. Uh, If you need a new website, I will make you one with Squarespace. Simple as that, really. Also, I'm hopefully going to be running a build-your-own-photography website workshop here in London next month in March, as soon as I have about six takers, which I think I nearly have now. So that'll be a half-day session, and at the end of it, you'll not only have a brand-new website, but you'll have the knowledge to create and manage your own content so you're not reliant on anyone else to do that in the future. And the cost for that is 150 quid. So if you're interested in joining in on that workshop, email me at ben at bensmithphoto.com. If you can't do the March one, there will be others later in the year. So Michał Ivanowski was born in Poland and has for some years lived in Cardiff, Wales, where he graduated with an MFA in documentary photography at the University of Wales, Newport. His work combines elements of the documentary tradition with a conceptual approach, 
and in his deeply personal projects, Mihao often sets his protagonists against nature and explores the relationship between landscape and memory, marking the silent passing of otherwise insignificant individuals and histories. In 2009, he won the Magenta Foundation Emerging Photographers Award. In 2012, Mihao retraced on foot the three-month, 2,200-kilometre trek his grandfather made from Russia to Poland after escaping from a Russian prison camp during the Second World War. Maps, family portraits and extracts from the memoir his grandfather wrote combined with Mihao's own photographs to create a meta-narrative about family, belonging, history, home, war and individual willpower. The resulting book, Clear of People, was published by Brave Books in 2017 and was long-listed for the Deutsche Börse Photography Prize in 2018. In 2016, Mihao embarked on a similarly epic walk when partly inspired by the clamour of the Brexit debacle and partly by a piece of graffiti he had seen many years earlier reading Go Home Polish, he decided to take the demand literally and set off from his home in Cardiff to walk the 1900 kilometres back to the town of his birth in Poland. Tracing a straight line through a map of Europe, the journey took him through Wales, England, France, Belgium, Holland and Germany and lasted 105 days. The resulting photographs appeared at the Peckham 24 Festival in London as an exhibition entitled Go Home Polish, which was also long listed for the Deutsche Börse Photography Prize. And uh, we shall see if, hopefully, there'll be a book of that project coming in the future, as Michał mentions in our chat. It was a real joy to have this chat. Michał, as you will hear, is an incredibly sweet and positive human being, as well as being very smart and super articulate. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Here's Mihao, like meow, like a cat. He'll explain. So Mihao, how do you pronounce your surname then? Ivanovsky. Okay, that one's easy. If you read the W says V's yeah. in British, that's, that's exactly that's, how yeah. it works. Yeah, I've learned, I've learned that. No, that's relatively straightforward. It looks daunting, but uh, once you get it, I yeah. guess it's... Uh, it's the, the Mihao that's, that's unusual because of that. L N yeah, 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 and also sounds like a cut. Like you know, when I say to people, it's me how me as me and how is how I. Yeah, it's put them together. People go me me how meow like a cut. And I, I mean, well, if that helps them to remember, then fine, you know. Absolutely. Like I always <laughs> tell my students that we've got two weeks to to milk that joke, the cut joke, and I said after two weeks you're, you're forbidden. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's me how statue of limitations yeah. on the, on that joke. Yeah. Ah, uh, so it's good to see. Thank you for joining me well thank um, you for having me you know it's funny because it didn't occur to me the relevance in a way of having you of all people because it's the first of february it is <laughs> and so we're brexit just happened and i knew that we were going to talk today for obviously for the last few weeks but it didn't really strike me that you are the exact right person mm, to be talking to on this day i don't know if it sort of struck you but a lot of your projects your two past main projects have been in part about some of the issues surrounding the whole Brexit Mm. debacle is what I will refer to it as. And here you are as a, a man with both a Polish and a British passport. You know, I don't know, for some reason it just seems, it just seems like you are exactly the right guy. Unfortunate position. (laughs) At this moment. How are you, how are you feeling about it all? Um, tired, definitely tired. And, and actually woke up this morning and I saw the newspapers and, and the celebrations, kind of a barbaric looking, you know, it almost looked like these topless men standing on, on, on monuments, statues, waving Union Jacks. And, and mm. that felt very surreal and totally uncalled for. Um, mm. 
But I, I, I mean, I tend not to read too much about this anymore because it is uh, so disheartening and uh, it's so negative that um, and it doesn't change my my position to be honest. So I only kind of accumulate the negativity and I carry it with me. And I think I've done a kind thing to myself and just uh, detached myself a little bit from it recently. But last night I was uh, at an exhibition in Cardiff, Gareth Phillips' new exhibition, and. The friends have this 360 dome cinema in there that was being played, and at 11 o'clock they had this um, visualization of the Union, uh, European Union um, blue flag with the stars, and uh, kind of like a soccer, not soccer, what you call it? Um, uh, gosh, when you play uh, pool thingy. When you, the, the ball that you hit, what's what's it called? Jesus Christ, is there a name for it? In pool? Yeah, or like, like a snooker. Yeah, like, no. It's Whatever. Snookable. Snookable. Cubal. That's uh, the one. Whatever. Yeah, that's the one. It, it had a face of Boris Johnson, and it was kind of crashing into right. the stars and breaking them apart. So that's what we did at, at 11. Right, right. Looking there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I'm completely on the same page on that. I, I have removed, I removed myself from it a very long time ago, and mm-hmm. I just can't face, you know, some people kind of, their their therapy is to kind of follow every detail obsessively yeah. mine is the opposite cause i'm like why would i want to do that to myself i just rather just pret- obviously you know you can't you, well you can put your head in the sand that's actually what i've been doing um because i just can't handle it and i'm like i don't some people you know find refuge in humor you know yeah. in, in satire and take the piss out of uh, people who are you know the the architects of it all but i can't find anything funny about it it's just too horrific it to is. find humor in for me yeah you're very right it is, <laughs> very, it is very so i just horrific. lose my sense of humor over it entirely so when people post stuff on facebook well there is that one of the guy jumping out of a moving uh tube train have you seen that one i haven't seen that one oh, what, <laughs> what happens in it my god it's, a, it's an old piece of footage of a bloke who's clearly got a mental health problem, but he's on a moving subway train, possibly in New York or whatever, and he's got someone has superimposed a, a Union Jack on his back. Okay. And the train is the EU, and he pr- literally prizes the door open and leaps out while it's moving and go- comes goes crashing to the ground. Oh, and it just <laughs> says, you know, this is the UK leaving Europe, Aye. basically. Yeah, I mean, there's and he basically looks like he could be very seriously hurt. Um, mm. As will we be? <laughs> I mean, this is something the big unknown, and I, I was a little bit. Now we can read actually. In the, uh, I read it a couple of days ago the exact parameters of, for example, driving in Europe after leaving the Union, or the new queues at the airports, or the roaming charges. Now the facts come out. The facts that we should have actually known when we were voting, mm. but now it's all going to kind of um, resurface, and and we'll we will just see what happens with us. But. Um, like you said, I've got two passports. One of them is no longer European. The other one, uh, I don't know how long Poland's going to be in the Union, but no, with the with the right government, um, yeah. the far right government. Is that is that what's going out. on at the moment in Poland? They've got a quite a, a right wing, extreme, yeah, extremely right wing, and and absolutely, um, <laughs> they're kind of uh, impudent. Like the way that the Polish government looks at the Union, it's is is atrocious how aggressive you know how they perceive it and 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 i will i'll be i won't be surprised if poland gets kicked out of the union at some right. point so okay. i might end up with two passports one of the europeans i'll be well pissed off yeah oh my god <laughs> well i think you know we as i say you, you know you've been you've been working on projects which definitely touch on this but the main one was was go home polish which mm-hmm. was your response in a way 
to the Brexit thing, as, um, among other things, and, and an exploration of what home is and what it means and all that. But um, and this involved quite a, an odyssey because you 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 walked home. I did. Yes, uh, twelve hundred miles uh, from Cardiff to Poland. But actually, that wasn't the first walk you did. You did you'd already done a, an epic walk. I had, yes. I th- so I think we should talk about that one first because Gohan Polish was the second uh, journey. So if you ever invite me for a walk, I'm, I'll probably decline on the grounds that... How, how far you know, do you think you could, yeah. you could walk? Because you know, we can do this one day, you know? No, I, I'm, I've always loved walking. I, I, can, I literally can walk all day, but I'm not going to do 1,200 miles with you tear that much. That's it. I think I may have, may have other things, uh, you know, urgent business to tend to. Well, we'll um, see. Okay, let's leave it open, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's leave it open. I do, I do fancy that. I do like the idea of, of a walk being the basis of a photo project, though. But yeah, the first one became the book clear of people yep. which you did with brave books so tell me about the first kind of well how how did the idea for that one come about i mean it's basically an old family legend or well, it's a true story oh, yeah. um f- so i guess it's something you were aware of from from a young age was it i was yes and we always knew that my grandfather and his brother did spend a year in a like a labor camp in the Soviet Union. They had been arrested as uh, partisans in 1944. Mm. They got um, under the pretense they would be trained as uh, Soviet soldiers. Right. Well, let's let's kind of before we move on, we should try and get to the bottom of this because uh, you know the Poland and the Soviet Union were on the same side mm-hmm. at that stage in the war. So let's remember that. So we have to explain why that happened. Well, uh, they, my grandfather and his brother were in what is now the Vilnius area of Lithuania. At that time, it was still Poland. So, I mean, it's a very complicated region. It changed governments and over and over again. But at that time, there were Polish Polish partisans roaming the, the, the forests around Vilnius, uh, basically uh, trying to jeopardize the German army's actions in that region. At the same time, the Soviet army was advancing towards the west and, um, of course, uh, fighting the Germans. And they had a problem with all these partisan groups in the forest because they were a nuisance, you know. They were not well-armed or well-trained, but they were quite potent when it came to, like, you know, derailing trails or, or mm. burning some bridges and stuff like that. They were the kind of resistance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they, were young, they were young, feisty boys who just, you know, really had a fire in the belly to do something. And uh, with all these groups of different groups, they were, like, uh, Russians... Um, Partisans, Polish partisans, Lithuanian, working independently in the same region, basically wreaking havoc. And so when the Soviets were advancing towards the West, they uh, kind of ambushed them, but rounded them up in a field with this uh, main general who said, join us, we're going to train you, going to give you new weapons and new uh, uh, uniforms. And after we've trained you, we can all take the Germans on. So they kind of, but it was uh, it was under arms, you know, so they were surrounded by tanks. It wasn't like, come on, join us. It was like, join us or, or die, basically. So all the boys had to put the, you know, put the arms down, and they were all transported into Russia. Some were taken to labor camps around Moscow, some down south in Kaluga, or different places. So the brothers ended up in, hmm. in prison for a whole year. And throughout that year, my grandfather was plotting how to get out. He was, uh, he was saving up sugar, salt, and uh, like rusks, you know, like hmm. little bread, bread kind of dry bread slices. Hmm. For a whole year, and he was uh, making these little tins. It's, this is kind of macabre. Like, he would find pieces of tin 
from crushed planes or whatever you could find, and you would turn them into these little souvenirs where you would carve, like, you know, for example, like a plane in a tank, and it would just say Kaluga 1945 as a souvenir from a labor camp. And he would exchange it with other pr- inmates for bread. Or, mm. or, and he was so he was bread. planning. He was planning it yeah, properly, kind of yeah. Thing. So you, you obviously this was a bit of a family legend that you became that you you know were aware of from an early age, um, because he, they did escape mm-hmm. uh, and they walked they back did, yeah. to Poland. Incre- an incredible story, you know. And I guess the war is absolutely full of those kind of personal yeah, it stories. Yeah, it is not an exceptional story. No. That's, that's what I write in the but, book. It is yeah. everybody's really. Well, yeah, kind of, but it's still it's still pretty amazing, especially by yeah today's standards. Yes, yeah. but. Um, you at what point did you rea- did you decide that it was going to form the basis of a photo uh, project? Well, I was at the residence in, uh, with the Lithuanian Ministry of Culture in Kaunas, and I was there for a month. And I was very close to to my grandparents' house in former, you know, and and around the Vilnius area. So I instinctively started uh, finding these places, and that was when the story resurfaced. And my grandfather had never been uh, a hero wannabe. He never. We never sat us down around the table and said, "I'm going to tell you what I, I had done, children." You know, hmm. never. He, he never mentioned it. He was a just a very. He was happy just carving in wood and and, and teaching us how to use a lathe. You know, mm. so there was never any kind of like a myth of a hero in the family. And um, I uh, I actually never spoke to him about this properly. And then he passed away. His brother was still alive, and so I could speak to him about this. And he also had written uh, a memoir when he. Uh, described the whole journey. Right. But that was in the 90s sometime. That it? was, yeah, early yeah. 90s, yes. So when I went to this Lithuanian residency for a month, I I visited the places where they had lived and, and there was something, something was brewing. But then it took me a little while to, to actually think about that particular story. I would say I didn't allow myself to explore these things because I just didn't, I wasn't ready maybe. But I remember sitting one day back in Cardiff thinking how did they do this like how did they walk from from russia to poland and then i had this marvelous thought that was well if you're so curious why don't you go and do it mm-hmm. and and that was that's how it happened i decided that that evening i started writing application for the arts council i already had some material from the previous uh, journey to lithuania and and they loved it and they said yeah so so i just you know got a mm. good of good pair of hiking boots and yeah. flew to moscow and and uh and that was it that was so it. you didn't really do that much preparation then no, no, I, I just, hardly ever do. Like, I am, I am, I am one of those kind of naive people who just say, "Well, how hard can it be? Yeah, how hard can it be to walk two thousand kilometers? What yeah, was it, two thousand two hundred or something?" Uh, that was similar. Yeah, about two thousand kilometers, a similar yeah. kind of um, distance. And uh, I mean, because they had walked parts of it, they had also taken freight trains. I had exact uh, description of what happened, so I was following these footsteps exactly mm. seventy years apart from the original journey. Wow. But yeah, in, in total, it was about ten weeks of of walking and, mm. and traveling across these regions. And like, did you have a sense of the k- kind of you know visual language that you wanted to use for it, or you know just what you were going to photograph and how you were going to photograph it? Or did that kind of evolve as you went along? It evolved as, uh, totally. I had no idea. I think I, uh, I had been expecting something much more dramatic. I was expecting uh, exotic things to happen. You know, it's almost kind of like a. Uh, very again naive uh, believe that oh my god what is it like to to go to Russia and and I went there and it was exactly the same as it was in my hometown yeah. or in Lithuania and then I realized that there is no I was ex- I was trying to maybe like no um, build it up in my in my brain to something that it actually wasn't and mm. it was a lovely refreshing 
process to actually come down and look at things and take them for what they were and for the, the, how mundane the, mm. the, the landscape, how familiar they were. You know? And of course, the whole point was you, you didn't want any people because, you know, their whole thing was obviously to avoid coming yes. into contact with people like the plague. In fact, they only traveled at night. Yeah. Because their whole thing was, yeah, let's not meet anyone if, if yeah. possible. They were obviously. fugitives, yes. Yeah. And, um, and so, and obviously it's all very, it's all quite rural because, you know, I guess, yeah, the last thing you want to do is go through any populated... Absolutely. Well, they had to do it. At that time, it was, was time of great famine after the war. People were starving. And for turning in a fugitive, the government would give you 16 kilograms of flour. So mm-hmm. that was roughly how much a fugitive was worth. And if people saw one, they would definitely, you know, turn yeah, them yeah. in. So they only walked at night, hid away from people. They did get ambushed and they lost. Four of them started the journey. Two of them died along the way. And, right. and they had some some ropey situations mm. but somehow they managed to, to, to make it yeah. quite miraculously and, and uh, well that gives you an indication of the sort of the seriousness of the challenge when uh, two of them didn't make it I mean yeah. Jesus that really brings it home mm. but um, and how much of it kind of came together in the editing process though in terms of like you know you kind of coming to a decision about the, ki- the images that you were going to choose and, and how the kind of thing was going to unfold a lot of it was down to the editing. I mean, many images appeared in the journey. I knew there were the images I wanted, but I was, I was, uh, it was my first project after my master's. So I was learning mm. in that process. And it was mostly a process of distilling and it was a process of stripping it off of uh, drama, stripping it off, you know, of um, unnecessary noise. Mm. And because the project is a meditation, that was the time when, uh, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis was was not about to break away. And lots of people were dying on the boats across the Mediterranean. And there was a lot of, uh, I found a lot of similarities between the fugitive's journey in 1945 and, you know, in, in 2010s. Yeah, and yeah, and at some point, these two these two kind of uh, realities came very close together. Because yeah. if you think about you know how why people leave their homes and and when your home is burning, whether it's 1945 or 2010, you still run away to safety, holding your children under your mm. arms. You know. Yeah. So yeah, that was the process was to make it as universal as it's. It wasn't really about my grandfather. It never no. was meant to be about him. It's about human condition. It's about the way we we wake up to a war and what do you do then mm. where do you go how, how does this work you did include certain sort of documentation from from that period though what what was that stuff about because uh, because the stories that I, I included the stories describing the event i felt i owed it to to my grandfather mm. and his brother to show it but there's quite a lot of um, images from the archives but they're not images of war they're mostly images of them as as, as young boys and girls yeah. falling in love and there's even a wonderful image from uh, I think uh, just before the war my grandfather and his friends cycling and they devised a, a, a string attached to a camera and they took a selfie the, oh, three, really? the three of them pulling a little string so, so the shutter would be released and there's this picture in, in the book somewhere yeah I got it yeah. And, and I think that's fantastic this is this is young people like I was I was thinking about my students for example thinking this is you and I with our dreams, aspirations, our no heartbreaks, whatever it is, we just want to get on with stuff and and, and live our lives. Yeah. And then suddenly your house is burning. There's tanks around you, and you have to kill. You have to run away. And and 
it can happen to us any minute. Mm. We're taking selfies now. I thought this image was actually the bridge for me that brought back, brought, brought home that it is uh, so universal and the history repeats itself. So, yeah, obviously, you know. Yeah. And so, like, I guess, yeah, I mean, it is, it is it's no mean feat covering that kind of distance. Did you, What was your lowest point then during that uh, epic journey that you undertook? Um, I don't remember. And this is this is the kind of beautiful oblivion. Like I don't remember bad things that happened to me. People remind me, and I think it was jolly. And then uh, I sometimes I have to remind myself. I mean, I, I got stuck in, in, in like a, like a, a bit of a swamp every now mm. and then. I, I had lots of like scrapes and bruises and things like that. I got cold mm. minus fifteen or twenty. I sometimes got hungry and wet, but it's nothing really. You know, it's some, it's something a child would experience when they go out playing in the forest for yeah, a little yeah. bit too late. Um, yeah, I didn't experience much animosity. People were very curious and kind in general. So um, my experience was absolutely different to their experience. But again, I wasn't there to recreate history. I was no, there to course. experience the same landscape and see it as a witness, you know, to my my journey and their journey, and, and looking for the parallels between the two. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I quite frankly don't remember low points, you know, and I'm, I'm quite happy about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about high points then? Uh, I think it's a, it's a slow releasing joy over time. I feel like uh, I feel very I don't know what to say, content that mm. I have done this journey. It was mm. something I needed to do as a human, and I felt really moved that I was. Uh, I don't want to sound corny. Probably will sound very corny, but there were times because you're walking alone for so long, and it's a very boring process. You know, the trees just keep moving. It's like a metronome: mm. pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree. At some point, you just don't even know what day it is. And at those points when your, your your perception of reality and signifiers of times and place are not there, you, you go into a bit of a trance and you travel in time. Mm. And I would look at places, think, and I would feel the presence of you know, of all the people who died there. My grandfather was maybe I wanted to feel that. You know, mm. you come up with, uh, with companions when you're on your own for such a long time, and it was very profound, super mundane, and I mean simple, but. It felt profound, and I, I I have taken that away from this project as something I did absolutely for myself. But I also know it resonates with most ev- mostly everybody because yeah. this is such a universal um, experience, right? So yeah, that was that was the feeling I would say. I was wondering if you know, kind of on a kind of more mundane level, it's you focusing entirely on just moving and shooting and moving and shooting. Did it? you know, really kind of did it move your photography along? Because you're saying this is the first thing you did after your MA. Uh, that's quite an intensive period over which you're trying to shoot, you know, I guess more or less every day. Yes. Um, did it Did it have that effect? Absolutely. The, the most wonderful uh, part of this process was me managing expectations of my photography, me coming down and me actually taking a break from wanting something spectacular. I don't know what it was about me when I started doing my master's. I I thought photography had to be loud. It had to be like, you no know, David LaChapelle kind mm. of uh, loud. Don't know why. That, that, that was on my mind. And I thought that this is the kind of work I would be making. And the kind of work that I made, I don't know, previously I would say this is the most boring thing I have ever seen in my life. But for me to arrive at a point when I look at these images now and I feel depth and some sort of a profoundness in them. That's that's what I found was mm. the biggest achievement for me as a photographer to actually appreciate 
the magic in the mundane and the simplicity, not trying to, to make a show and not trying to be loud and, and asking for attention. That was wonderful. Like I was so happy to shed that kind of... I guess it's, uh, it's a process many people undergo much young, at a much younger age, but um, for me it, just, it took a while. Well, yeah, but the, uh, at the same time, it's a process a lot of people never get to uh, <laughs> you know, experience. So. And so you, you did your MA in uh, Cardiff? In Newport, Newport. Yeah, mm-hmm. so how, what, what was that, what was your journey to there then? I mean, like, when did you get into photography initially? You know, it was a very... Because uh, you were born in Poland, right? I was born and you in Poland. grew up there until what, I, what age? I was 24 when I came to Britain. Okay, so you spent your entire formative years there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I did my master's in English back in Poland. I was an English teacher. But then in my last year of master's, I came to Britain for an exchange with Socrates Erasmus that we now can say goodbye to. Thank you, Boris. <laughs> and... Um, I came over to did my masters, but realized that nobody really needed me speaking English in Britain because people did it much better than I did. Right. Know? And I couldn't become a teacher. And, and literature is something that I'm slightly interested in, but I'd never really studied it thoroughly, even though I wrote my final thesis about um, Irish literature, uh, about national identity and James Joyce, uh, William Butler Yeats, and Sinead O'Connor, for, right. for good measure. <laughs> um, but then... Um, because I enjoyed Cardiff and I wanted to stick around, I thought that was the perfect time to pursue my second passion, which had been photography. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I started. I did my first um, kind of like a foundation course with photo gallery. And it turned out I had some, some I wouldn't say no talent, but, but my tutor said, you maybe should you'd consider doing the master's. The promise. So there, was, there was a promise. There, yeah. was a, there was a slight, you know, s- seductive uh, gaze that I got mm. from, from photography at that time. So I, I did join the, the master's program in Newport and did it over two years, 2006 to eight. And after that, I didn't take a picture for four years, I don't think. Really? Until I started working on Clear of People. Why? I had nothing to say. Right. That was actually, you, hadn't for, you hadn't lost enthusiasm for it, for it as a... No, uh, I was pursuit. still no. I was still taking pictures of of, of friends, but uh, I absolutely had no direction. I didn't have a voice. It was it was something. I think I got slightly disappointed in photography at that time, because it was the transition from you know wanting to make something so huge and big that I will be you know like mm. a rock star of photography. Mm. You know, I still had ideas. I think still 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 thought I was you know going to be like a, I don't even know who. Mm. Well, just Any Leibovitz, you know. Yeah, no. <laughs> Although you know. Frankly, yeah, but you know that kind of he's not all that. Anyway, I mean, yeah, yeah, but at that time there was something that I, I, I thought that a photographer, a photographer was somebody who was just that kind of, you know, mm. present, right? Like, yeah, uh, bizarrely, I, I didn't really understand photography at all. Well, yeah, you've kind of discovered the opposite to be the case in a way, like you say, with this. So, clear of people was actually inc- incredibly important because it also kind of kick-started you back. Yes, absolutely. It, it actually formed me. I've, for the masters, I got quite a lot from the masters. I got uh, the signals that I am not on the right tracks, that I am not thinking the right way, whatever the right way is, but not for me anyway. So uh, I took that time, the four years apart, and then when I went to, to this residency in Lithuania, thank you, thanks to David Drake from Photo Gallery. That's when I actually looked at photography for the first time, thinking, okay, what am I doing here? Mm. What, have I got anything to say? Is it, is it, how do I say it? And is it worth it? Mm. Is it going to make anybody's life better? Or should I just not do it? And that those was, are very good questions to ask. I don't know if everyone asks themselves those questions. Those are, that's a kind of a pretty uh, solid kind of uh, approach to take, I think. 
it took a while to get there, but once I got there, it's almost like the uh, the very base base formation of my being as a human now. And I always ask myself the same question, and it works. It's mm. such a fundamental thing to do, but I, ha- I hadn't known that before, you know. Yeah. So it took a while, a bit of like chipping at, at at the university and getting bad feedback for my photography and. I had thought I was special before, you know? <laughs> so I thought, why don't they like this? This is great, right? It's so colorful. But but the tutors were like, oh, God, this is just so twee. This is this, this is that. And I didn't get it. And I was kind of disappointed in the whole process. But I am so happy it happened because I needed it. I needed mm. to be... Well, broken. it's a, yeah, it's a great example of that process working, you know, in your case, isn't it? You Absolutely. Know, that you, if you'd had to try and figure that out for yourself and you decided you weren't going to go that route of actually studying it you know formally you might not you might never have had that breakthrough absolutely yes so that was the b- biggest lesson from the masters i wouldn't say uh, i was ready to learn anything else at that time but the two things that were great was meeting the, my peer photographers and the second one was actually being uh broken mm. so i could then start thinking as a no as mm. a more mature person and i'm super grateful for it it was worth the money yeah i bet <laughs> All right, so fast-forwarding to the second epic uh, walk. So, yeah, yeah, I guess you've done it once, so maybe it didn't seem quite so daunting the second time, having had that experience. But um, Go Home Polish was the title of the project, um, yes. and uh, this was only, well, it was only a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? It was, um, yeah, 2018 yeah. when I did it. And it, it, was, it was long-listed for the Deutsche Börse yeah. uh, Photography Prize. So a successful project, you could say. But uh, the title came from a piece of graffiti in Cardiff. Uh, so, yeah, talk me through how it came about. Because I think that the, you seeing that piece of graffiti obviously you know, started a, a mental kind of thought process. But it was a long gap between you seeing that and then actually sort of turning it into the, the, the kernel of an idea for the project. Yeah, you're right. It was all 10 years, I think. Mm. Uh, I think the graffiti, I found the graffiti in 2008. So it was just as the uh, economic crisis was, was now sweeping across Europe. And it took me 10 years to, to uh, come to a, to a place where I was able to attack it, you know, uh, to tackle it. And I think, um, especially after, after Clear of People, when I did it, it did quite well. And the book came out and, and it was also you know, nominated for Deutsche Bulls. And I felt like, all right. I'm getting somewhere with this photography. I am speaking about something that people are interested in. And that's when I thought this is time to just get that slogan and turn it. Mm. Because it, um, it was a very subversive idea and a very um, humorous in many ways, auto-ironic. But I thought the only way I can appropriate this slogan is to take it literally and own it, mm. strip it of the venom. That I felt, you know, it was a tiny little graffiti, so for, people wouldn't even notice it. But for me, at that particular time, it made me ask questions that were burning and that were painful. Mm. And yeah. well, also because that was long before Brexit uh, I, as an idea, even you know, was even a, anything that anyone could even have imagined. Yeah. But by the time you set about the project, of course, you know, we were in our in the Brexit. Uh, world yes because that was like two years after the referendum so that was that must have been it surely that was part of your thinking that absolutely yes i think when i first heard about the referendum idea was something 2015 i think september i thought okay it's time to to start acting right now because it's going to be personally important to me but also i think it's going to be able to be part of a bigger conversation and i thought the general narrative we have in, in the media is is very um 
it is very biased, of course, depending on which which publications you read. But mm. it's also uh, quite generically using umbrella terms that go home Polish or uh, British people do this or German people do that. And I have I am allergic to generalizations like this. I know, we know what happened in 1930s when you know Jews became cockroaches before mm. they were burned you know, or killed in, in concentration camps. And I thought this is exactly the same moment when we are allowing that kind of language to exist. And I thought, I am not Polish and I am not this. I am Michał Ivanovsky. I have a national insurance number, a face, uh, feelings, all these you no know, human things around me. And I said, I want to be a part of this conversation as this, w- the basis of my foundation, which is Michal Ivanovsky, not as a part of an imaginary group that I ne- didn't even choose to be part of. You know, I never chose to be Polish, like you didn't choose to be British. It's not like you put a request to your future mother, say, please, can you deliver me in this particular geography so I am British? It's mm. uh, arbitrary. It's, it's uh, like a potluck party, you know. So I thought I will not be spoken of as this person that I didn't it doesn't represent me enough. It's an aspect of me, of course, and I've got a Polish passport. But I also have a British passport, you know. Mm. So where do I fit into this? And I thought if I am to be a part of this conversation, I have to do it from that perspective. And uh, it, I had no doubt about that at that time. So I knew I was going to be the subject of this project and absolutely no idea how, mm. but I knew I was going to do it that way. Yeah. So did you prepare for this one or was it was the same story? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's pathetic, you know. I mean, I tell you, I did a couple of days before. When I was writing the application for the Arts Council, I did a two or three days walk uh, from Cardiff towards England as a tester. So three days of walking, got blisters the size of cherry tomatoes. And I thought, yeah, I can handle that. Learn how to pop them. <laughs> Once oh, I've done God. that, I felt, okay, I, can, I think I can handle it. But it's absolutely ridiculous how I work. Yeah. Just, no, I mean, I think it's, it's probably, there's something about it that's appealing <laughs> but what what was the purpose for you there there was also the question of you know what home is and and all of that i mean was that in there from the start yes uh, i think when i first saw the graffiti my question was am i home am i not home who gets to tell me who gets to tell anybody what home is and 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 uh, what power have I got in 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 my life in Britain? Like, can somebody just put me on the back of a lorry and, and send me to Poland? Okay. I wanted to find out what that actually meant. Now, <laughs> well, now- <laughs> on February the first, maybe more so. Except you're a bit of an exception because you do have a British passport. So I think you are fine. But you know, I I come from a very uh, precarious uh, kind of uh, history. You know, I grew up in in, in Soviet Union. Like my first 13 years of my life of 14 were yeah, of know, under the Soviet Union with very little trust towards people, governments, and, and also having a very subservient nature. Like I was, we were the bastards of Europe, you know, we were not allowed to leave Poland. You mm. were not allowed to be here and there. So to be in Britain, I always felt like I did, wasn't deserving of it in a way, you know, like I was, I was the, the sore kind of uh, wound on, on the British society. I was the leech you know, whatever, even though I wasn't, but that mm. kind of mentality was still with me. So when somebody does write, go home Polish, it, for, I, I took it very seriously. You know, now yeah. I don't, but then I needed to go through this process. But um, sure, sure. I wanted to ask the question to people along the way, what is it? If I told you to go home, where mm. would you be going? Would you be going where people speak a language, where people pray to your God, where people kick the ball in the right direction mm. on the football pitch? Or I don't know, what, what, what is it that makes it for you? And uh, I thought if I ask enough people in the eight countries I'll be crossing, maybe I'll get an answer for myself. Yeah. Well, did you? 
I did absolutely yes, and it's uh, probably I, I should I knew it already, but it really I, I reaffirmed it, and how I, I rose above all of the political divides and and geography and and politics, passports, uh, football uh, teams, to a level of universal global kind of perspective like the ground underneath my feet is my home and nobody will be telling me whether it is or not because we are all born onto this piece of rock we all float through space at the same speed we're all gonna end up in the same place we're all in this shit together really mm-hmm. so i needed to see all these people along the way and also to be present in the landscape to sweat into it to drink from it to sleep in it you know like kind of very primal um return to that connection and once I felt it, there's no coming back. I'm untouchable. It's, mm. it's really, it's a wonderful thing. I recommend everybody to walk for, for at least now two weeks mm. <laughs> to get to that point because that really you do understand that human to human, not Polish to British, you know? I mean, you talked about, you know, like you say, this kind of media narrative, and, but the, I, I, you, you obviously are a very kind of positive person. Mm. So, but, you know, your experience of it, as far as I can gather, was in complete contradiction to the kind of bullshit that we've been fed for the last couple of years in terms of... Most people that you experienced... Well, you tell me what kind of uh, what kind of interactions did you have? This was uh, something that I had not anticipated. Uh, I I was bracing myself for confrontation. I was bracing myself for uncomfortable conversations with people, and they never came. And I was on the road for three months. I met one lady who kind of mentioned that oh, her son cannot find jobs because of immigrants. And that was the first day of the walk. Right. So that was in Wales. Yeah, that was yeah, actually just before I crossed the bridge, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was the only kind of like, a, not even, like, we wouldn't even say negative, you know, nobody like threw, uh, uh, yeah, threw stuff didn't, up. There was here. no kind of Nazi saluting Absolutely kind of skinhead uh, Nigel Farage fans. Nothing. And I mean, I was walking through Kent, you know, and, and <laughs> you would yeah. imagine that. Their home, well, the very kind of heartland of that kind of person. That kind yeah. of narrative. And, and I didn't meet a single person. And I would tell people what I was doing when they asked. But at the same time, I also understand that I am a white male, friendly looking tourist with a bag on his back. I, I'm not a threat. I'm not here to stay. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing some silly art projects so people can kind of turn a blind eye to it. They wouldn't necessarily come up with the, you know, with the real feelings on the spot. But there wasn't even like a hint of negativity from people. They were kind. Like People would feed me. People would take me into their homes. They would just you know, share stuff with me talk with me, tell me their stories. And it was very profound on a very deep human to human level throughout the journey. Regardless of which country you were Absolutely. In. Yeah. It was uh, absolutely astonishing for me to realize that fundamentally humans are not assholes, which I had <laughs> thought, you know, when you, when you read in newspapers all this negativity, yeah. you do assume that you're living in a bad, bad world. Yeah, if you read you know. the Daily Mail every day, that's going to have a profound impact on the way that you look at the world. Absolutely. And, and people, I mean, people, I think generally as a society, we, we, yeah, we, we, we do have a lot of dumbness mm. you know simplicity uh, of understanding of things but um 
kindness is still there, and that's something that I strongly stand by. Hmm. People are kind. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> At good to know. the ones I've met, you know. Yeah, but in this for this one, this was a bit different because you sort of you sort of brought a little kind of performative aspect into yes. it in a way. Mm-hmm. How did that decision come about? It was uh, very spontaneous. I knew I was going to be the protagonist of this project, just to be the Polish, and I had to be part of it. And I had to work out a way in which I would f- uh, feature in these images. And, and that just happened automatically when, when stories that people told me or elements or objects I would find called for some sort of action. And it was very shameless of me to do it. Like, I have absolutely no performance training, but I thought, well, how hard can it be again, <laughs> you know? So I just started um, working stuff out as I went. I would set the camera on a tripod, set it on, like, uh, th- uh, exposure every three seconds, and uh-huh. we just go and, and, and do Okay, whatever okay. it was like there's some images when uh somebody would tell me like the, the lady in, in that lake for example in germany that was uh a dam was built and and the lake swallowed the whole village this is uh, ursula ursula's house yeah tell me about that that was a pivotal point and i was in cologne at the time and uh journalist claudia kuchland from who did a little feature for tv arte at the time she told me over breakfast um my mother lived in that place before the war and after the war they built a dam and the whole village was flooded and and uh of course people were resettled and about 50 years later the grown-up children took the mother back to the took ursula back to that uh lake and she could find that house i mean imaginary house with the, she would point with the finger the house is there the church is there that's where the road is and she built the whole village through imagination on the surface of the water and the kids went and swam in it and Claudia told me that was the most profound feeling because uh, she was floating above a house that she couldn't see with her mother somewhere there on the shore. And she felt the strongest connection to past, present, future, mm. crossing like all different possible dimensions. And she said it was the most profound feeling of home. And I thought, I mean, this is the most poetic. So that was symbolic way. for you of the Absolutely. whole Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have a word in, in Welsh, hiraith, uh, which describes that kind of longing feeling to to a home to a place that is mixed with nostalgia joy love everything in it but you cannot really describe it like heimat in german mm. in english i don't think we have a word like this that really gets mm. to the core of it but uh uh i thought i need to find this lake and swim in it just like the children so my performance in this was just that kind of i will reenact i will do the same to see if i feel something oh i i had this this picture of me wrapped up in in and wire like scratching like squeezing into like a roll of wire and i had to do it after a night in a hostel where the uh, it was the world cup at that time polish team were playing against colombia getting whipped like and i was doing some work on the computer at the table and i have no interest in football whatsoever or in sports in general but i could suddenly feel that people who were in the room were looking at me angrily like it's like, what the hell is going on? Why is this game so shit? And I realized I was wearing a T-shirt with a Polish flag on it. <laughs> and that was enough for them to kind of ask me, like, what the hell is this? And I was <laughs> very surprised and said, but guys, I didn't train them. Like, it's <laughs> not down to me. Yeah, it's not my fault. But I realized that the T-shirt was like, uh, almost like, you know, uh, like a straitjacket. So when I was walking the next day through the German forest and I saw this uh, wire kind of roll, I thought I have to squeeze through it to exercise that demon. And took me a couple of hours to get in and out, scratch myself to hell and back, but I felt cathartic, like, no, cathartic mm. kind of energy coming from it again. Mm. So the performances that you were asking about were a result of, of, of either things that happened to me, stories people told me, or I would just find an object. Quite a lot of them are 
auto-ironic approach to Polish work who ruins the, you know, European... Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that was the thing. You you did uh, explore some um, stereotypes. I guess mm -hmm. that was the other aspect to it. Yes, absolutely. I found joy in it to become the Polish plumber. And again, I, I because I had a... The backpack was about 15 kilograms. I wouldn't carry any props with me. But then... Walking through Germany, I found this um, spanner right by the side of the road. And I thought, well, France wants me to address the Polish plumber. <laughs> right. so, so I would just automatically start doing this. It was very playful. It was very childlike. Yeah. And I found it liberating, joyful, but also quite profound in a way. You just react openly to things that you see, you find and feel without editing yourself. Mm. And... I think that kind of reaction was is the the value of this, this project is that you are open and you you basically you just you just become these things that nature wants of you or your situation calls for, and then that that becomes a picture of a human, mm. picture of a Europe, picture of of all these these questions that I had on my mind, you know. Mm. So you're obviously pretty good in your own company then, because you must have spent quite large chunks of time on your own. Oh, I love it. It's, it's the easiest, no? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to think I was well, an some easy people, person. But, yeah, but for some people, that would be a nightmare. But I suppose it like, depends on, you know, maybe it's a kind of uh, introvert, extrovert thing or something like that. I love I love company. I love people. Yeah. But at the same time, I really am greedy for uh, a long time. Me too. I, really I think that's an introvert thing. Definitely, yes. Yeah. I mean, I that's mean, what that means, basically, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm happy to be with people on my own terms. Yeah. When I feel like it, a bit like a cat, you know. <laughs> I don't even like cats that much, but I mean, yeah. I'm more like a dog person. But whatever that means. But I, you know, there was a wonderful thing that happened to me on the journey that reduced my need for company almost completely. I met uh, a writer, Alexandra Lun, whose um, whose book uh, Palimpsest has been. Uh, she wrote it, and she's a Polish uh, writer. But she moved to Spain. She learned Spanish. She wrote his book in Spanish. And the book is now uh, it's doing really well. Like it got translated into French now, and Le Monde gives it five stars. It's getting, getting translated into uh, Dutch. I have the English version of it. And I stayed with her for two nights in Ghent, in, in Belgium. And because we, we kind of met totally by accident, and I was just walking past, and I said, hey, can I swing by? And she says, yeah, I'm not very well, but yeah, come over. So I stayed for two nights, and uh, we spent the time laughing and talking about language, politics, animals she's very similar to me in the sensitivity and sense of humor but what happened after i left her again somehow we started recording each other little messages on 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 the phone on the iphone like in the kind of not as a whatsapp message but as a voice recording mm. and she sent me one and then i sent her one back and we started this conversation that lasted until the very last day of the journey and sometimes we would record like three times a day like 15 minutes a bit like a podcast like we're doing now mm. And that, that, that it was it was about philosophy. It was about love. It was about everything. Why don't you just, put that out somewhere? You should. I will at some point. Yeah. It is uh, the most joyful kind of creation. But uh, I think I will need much more time. And, and of course, I will need to work with Alexandra um, just to see because it's a there's a lot of things that we probably wouldn't be able to to uh, share with people because mm. we just you know uh, share private stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the, the the premise of it was a the most wonderful companion for me for that road and. And also um, an immigrant, you know, a Belgian citizen of Polish origin writing a book in Spanish. And the book is about all the authors in history that's wrote in language that wasn't theirs by birth. Oh, wow. Really? So it was, uh, no, there were so many layers yeah. to this conversation. And she's extremely intelligent, extremely funny. Uh, so she was my companion 
and it was actually wonderful. Like I had no room for anybody else at that time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you pick, yeah, you see, you're picking your company very uh, wisely there. Um, now there aren't really any urban scenes. It's all quite rural. Was that a deliberate kind of choice? It kind of happened as I drew the line on the map. I thought straight line from Cardiff to to Mokshashov, the the village, and no major cities appeared. I did cross Dresden and I did cross um, uh, Cologne and other places, but in the cities, the images I took, they just didn't work for mm. me. There were I didn't feel comfortable in the cities. To there was I mean I went to Brussels and I went to the Parliament and I, w- I took a picture of a dog pissing on on the on the Parliament wall, but and I thought this is not the kind of project. This is a totally different uh, approach. I wanted to move away from the political heaviness of it because we have enough of it in the newspapers. We have enough projects about you know that kind of narrative. So I thought I'm doing something different. And I'm doing something quieter. Therefore, the city somehow didn't feature. Mm. I mean, I still, I'm still editing the project. I still have some images. Are that I kind of in a purgatory, but um, I don't think it's... Yeah. The cities didn't really make it. You also did some writing, didn't you? There was a diary aspect to it as well. Yes, yes. Was I mean, that an important part of it for you? It is. In many ways, I didn't take any portraits of people, but of course the journey was, was solitary, but uh, I met people, I spoke to people. People fed this project. Without people's stories, without people's reactions, I wouldn't have a material for, for mm. this. So I wanted to include people in this project without pictures for, for two reasons. First of all... Uh, I am kind of tired on the formula of the formula when you have a portrait and a story next to it because it's so disposable. It's, I mean, it works, but I'm tired of it. You just mm. read and you forget. It just goes on and on and on. So I thought I will not take pictures of people. Also, I'm, I'm pretty rubbish at portraits, I think. I, I mean, they were just like, yeah. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, they were okay, but I didn't feel they were any special. But I thought if I write people instead, uh, the audiences have to make a massive effort while reading these people, because you put energy and emotion into imagining that person. Maybe often you actually interweave yourself into that person. So then you have a portrait. You're not looking through a window at a freak show. You're looking into a mirror. Mm. You are actually investing into in something. And I feel for, for purposes of empathy and understanding, that was uh, more, I would say, fruitful than just taking a simple portrait of a person. That's where the writing came in and the stories that uh, people told me in little snippets filled the gaps where you no know, people would normally be. Yeah, little anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. And they they they, they are the narrative of the whole project. Well, I me I am just the person person who glues it in a linear kind of a way, but yeah. it's those stories. How it's going to be presented, you know, and like I'm hoping to make a book at some point. I'm writing this book, but it's it's like you know drawing tears from a stone at the moment. Well, I was going to ask you. So, is there going to be a photo book of this project? I think so. Yeah, but you're going to write some text as well. Yes, I'm writing a a journal, diary of a geisha. You know, (laughs) (laughs) not really. Just kind of. I did the the project was uh, documented on Instagram, and actually, I was showing this work in Peckham 24 last year during Mm. Photo London, and I made a 10 meter long light box that Mm. that housed 126 Instagram posts. It was uh, the size of an iPhone 6, but long for 10 10 10 meter Mm. long, uh, chronologically documenting images and text and that text is is forming the base of this book but i for some reason i had an ambition to write a little bit deeper than just uh, little anecdotes and maybe this is where i'm failing because maybe i'm 
more of like a spur of a moment, right? Rather than a long, um, rather than a, a James Joyce, you know. <laughs> well, maybe you just need to keep plugging away until there's some kind of a breakthrough. There. Maybe yes, yeah. but I feel I find myself too self-indulgent in writing. I have very little experience, so I, I sometimes feel like I'm trying to be too clever, and then I read it back a few months later, and I feel it's like well, it's like public masturbation. You know, mm. come on, just strip it down. I've learned that simplicity is 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 just the best formula for me to mm. communicate. But with the writing at the moment, the way I am writing, I am definitely trying too hard. And maybe this is something I have to get out of my system. Maybe I have to just do it that way and then leave it for a few months and then edit it down. But I got a little bit discouraged because I have a lot of work. So I'm kind of, uh, it's there waiting for me. But mm. it's like a hedgehog and a dog, you know, you want to bite it, but you're scared of, of, the, of the spikes. You okay, know? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. I like that analogy. I've never heard that one. Um yeah, so what were the challenges of this one? So, well, partly it was like there was a massive heat wave going on, so you were like frying. It was nasty. Was, nasty. was that relentless for a while? Because it was 105 relentless. days altogether, I think. Yeah. I imagine for most of it, it was like that, was it? It was absolutely nasty. I think the, the first few weeks, Britain was kind of nice. It was still May, April, May. It was nice and mild. But as soon as I hit the mainland Europe, I think Germany, that's when it happened, mm. the big heat wave. And yeah, because I hadn't prepared, I had this massive bag, and you walk every day, but you also have to think, you have to write, you have to take pictures, you have to plan. The administration was killing me. Like every evening you have to find, first of all, you have to wash your pants and socks in a <laughs> sink with like a hand, hand soap, you know, because I wouldn't carry like proper washing powder yeah, yeah. with me. Then you have to dry that stuff and then you have to sit down and see, okay, where am I going to go tomorrow? Where, where am I going to sleep? Is there a cheap Airbnb around? Or do I have to camp? Or... And that would take hours, hours on end. And then you have to edit the images. And then that heat wave, that was an absolute bastard. And, uh, and uh, we, it's interesting how we prepare for the cold, for the wet, you know? Yeah, that's, but the, not that's the scary bit. Right, yeah, yeah. But yeah. nobody thinks about the heat. I mean, we live so in like, Britain. Yeah, no? you need one of those hats with a, you know, with a thing going down the, your neck yes. kind of thing. You yeah, know? yeah like, I never thought but, about this. Yeah. But then Alexandra Loon, who's a very, very good uh, traveler, she would give me the advice over the phone saying, you have to get a hat, you have to get electrolytes. I had a moment of, of an absolute collapse just past uh, Cologne, and I actually did decide to throw in the towel for a couple of hours lie down on the side of the road and I felt so sorry for myself, like mother of all gloom and doom with me. Oh, that was, that was pathetic. That was your, that was your <laughs> nadir. That was your low point. It was really, really low. And, and, uh, yeah, I threw a tantrum. It was, yeah, it was sad. It was actually profound sadness. I felt, fe I, f I felt defeated and sad, like deeply sad, but it was bizarre. It was just the electrolytes. Right. Literally two, uh, I, 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 Stayed with this family for three days, drank lots of electrolytes, and I was a, like a newborn a few days later. So yeah. it was simple chemistry. You know? yeah. I was learning great things about biology at that yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you sometimes we you know when you you know you feel you, you know you get hangry. You know when you're hungry and you get angry, and yes, it's like yes, you know it's it's just you just need to eat. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's you just, just, you just, oh, just lie down, you know, <laughs> have a glass of water. Yeah. It's a simple, it seems like the world is coming to an end, but or you, you know, you turn into some kind of the Incredible Hulk or something, but it's just like, yeah, you just need to eat something. But how you're right, like the world is ending for that moment. I, 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 was, I was really shocked. Well, I mean, I think it's a test, it's a kind of testament to your positivity that that only happened once in a way, you know, 
any mm. sense to me. Oh, once I discovered the electrolytes, I was I was flying for the rest of the road. Yeah. But the, the heat was unbearable, and I did make recordings for myself to remind myself never to do a project like this again. Right. Even though, if you ask me now, I don't remember any of the bad things. I think it was wonderful. Yeah. But I have video footage of me looking like a bit like a like a possessed person mm. saying, "Do never do this again." <laughs> It's fair enough. Are there any particular characters that you met during the course of that trip that stick in your memory? Mm. Yeah, Ursula was definitely one of those, yeah. uh, and she's still alive, you know. Mm. So, so we kind of like have this connection. Oh, cool. But there was um, the first one that I re really, really struck a chord with me was uh, Yen, who is who came to Britain from China about uh, I think 13 years ago. Or so, uh, a, a British cyclist fell ill while cycling across southeast uh, China and, and she looked after him for a couple of weeks despite the language barrier and, and he fell in love with her and I think two years they were courting and then he brought her to Chippenham <laughs> <laughs> and then she when he picked her up at the airport no, he got a coat for her and she said I don't need a raincoat and he says oh yes you do <laughs> so uh, I met her while walking uh, by uh, Marlborough somewhere and um, she was picking wild garlic so I said can I join you and, and we had this nice conversation and And she told me about this, the, the story about this marriage, you know, how she picks the wild garlic because the whole street where she lives in, in, in Chippenham, they expect her to make these dumplings for them once every summer. And there's a big feta. It's, it's kind of like a feast in the street where the people meet and do that. And it was wonderful, just me and her doing this together. She, she was the first person that made me think about, you know, uh, that people will tell me wonderful stories along the way. And then... They kept happening, and I think the, the, a few heartbreaking ones that I remember was one of the uh, guy called um, who had a son called Frederick, and there was this uh, abandoned-looking uh, canoe in, or kayak in front of his house. It looked comically as if it was going to be shot into the sky from this catapult, and I thought it was funny, so I took a picture of it. And he came out of his house and started talking to me, and told me this was, had belonged to his son Frederick, who had brain tumor and died at the age of 30. And there was so much pain in this man's voice, even though it had happened a long time ago. He still hasn't filled that void of losing his son. And he would tell me these stories about how they traveled and they don't do it anymore because Frederick is gone. Frederick is dead. He would repeat this phrase and it sounded almost like he needed to say it to die really? yeah, for a oh moment to die and be able to be with his son for a fraction of a second before he started breathing again and he was a very lovely positive person but you could you could you could taste the pain you know mm. and then he says well this is our home i built it 60 years ago and and it wasn't home anymore it was a house and i knew that this man would never be home again because he lost that son That's all. No, those stories made me actually think about home as something much bigger than are you british are you polish that kind of you no know, such superficial yet yeah. such decisive uh, kind of criterion for all of us now you know like mm. a piece of paper that allows you to be here or be there but home is so much bigger mm. what was it like to finally rock up to your uh, destination then uh, <laughs> what, what was going through your head i was um I think I was very apprehensive about this. I was worried there's going to be a whole hoo palava that I'm going to uh, arrive and they're going to be standing outside the, the house and it's going to be embarrassing. And I knew the film crew were waiting for me there. So I was slightly apprehensive. I was tired. I wanted to go to sleep and I didn't want to talk to anybody. But they were waiting. <laughs> My mother was waiting. And that was, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking yet sweet moments, just her standing there looking out like an animal. Where's the child, you know? Mm. That, was, that was wonderful. But then... 
half an hour after I was already on the BBC radio live talking about it. So there was no time of, of kind of recuperation. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. But it was underwhelming. It was, it was weird and I wanted it to be over. Also, I didn't want to stop walking in a way. I did want to stop walking, but that marked something huge, you know. 105 days on your own walking every day was an adventure even mm -hmm. though it was a challenging adventure I loved it it was mm -hmm. wonderful and suddenly it came to an end you know yeah. <sighs> so what are you up to at the moment are you kind of always working on some kind of project or, or you, do you take breaks you know between them I mean obviously you're also having to earn a living somehow I presume yeah and do I you, teach mm. you, you teach so you don't have to you're not reliant on getting jobs no Uh, into uh, photography jobs no i don't i don't i mean i am a freelancer and i've been a freelancer for 15 years but uh at the moment i teach uh children with uh who, who were failed by mainstream education i teach media for for kids who have no extreme autism or, or social anxiety so it's a wonderful job challenging as hell but i really love it three days a week but i work on a few projects i work with H company which is uh like age uk i work on a project with people living with dementia um, I run workshops with homeless people. So it's a lot of little projects I, I do for for a living. But in terms of my own work, I don't, I'm not working on anything at the moment apart from Go Home Polish. Mm. I took uh, five years with Clear of People from start to finish. And Go Home Polish is probably going to be the same. I'm in no hurry in, in yeah, terms of... Yeah, so it's very much an ongoing... Absolutely. Ongoing when it's thing. ready, it's ready. When the, uh, the goat needs to be milked a little bit more, you know. <laughs> so, so I'm seeing when I have exhausted this project and it has been finalized, then I'll I'll move on to something new. But otherwise, uh, I'm a one project kind of guy, mm. you know, at the time. And absolutely no rush. If I have something interesting to say, I will say it. Otherwise, maybe I'll never make another one. I doubt it because I'm you know I'm a communicator and I'm curious. So it's likely that at some point I will have something to say. But at the moment, there's absolutely nothing there that's mm. brewing. Well, I hope you make another one, mate. Hopefully. <laughs> I, I will look forward to seeing it. I also Thank look you. forward to, um, you know, seeing the Go Home Polish kind of in some kind of tangible form, hopefully as a book. It'd be lovely to have it I as a book. Yeah, I'll, I'll work on it. But, but um, Clear of People um, is a book. And uh, can people still get it or is it all sold out? It sold out, actually. It was a ghost book. It sold out before it was published. I did this... Uh, Uh, Kickstarter campaign with Tom Razowskas from Brave Books and we sold most of the copies in pre-sales and wow. then the rest were they went to TP Bookshop in Brussels and a few other mm -hmm. uh, the Photographer's Gallery in London but I mean I still have a few copies in my bed and I'm sitting on them they're babies you know the book nearly killed me I ended up in, in a hospital with serious health problems because it was a very stressful pro process to make oh, it did? oh yeah 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 like my stomach exploded I was in a lot of under a lot of stress and, and things were going wrong Bizarrely, the book wanted to be published in Lithuania where the whole thing started. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a person to believe in snow kind of uh, superstitious uh, elements, but the, the publisher wanted to publish it in Germany, print it in a nice printing house. And we went then and it all went tits up. The, mm -hmm. the prints were awful and, and we lost a lot of money because it was offset printing. So every time it made a change, it was costing like a, a grand, you mm -hmm. know, just to, just to make improvements. And we parked it for, for almost a year. And or like nine months, and in that time, all the people who pledged money on 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 the Kickstarter were kind of patient, but some were not. And uh, I was getting a very anxious receiving messages from people saying that I am, you know, taking liberties or I'm actually. Oh my God, that's horrible, isn't it? The kind of because it wasn't your really your fault. So no, it wasn't no. the it wasn't the, uh, funnily enough, it wasn't the Kickstarter campaign that made you <laughs> sick. It was the it was what happened. Uh, it was a lot of, yeah, a lot of stress, and then I remember. Uh, If in the end, 
the the German publisher we kind of that the, no we moved to to Lithuania and it was there was a lot of ongoing problems in there. But the day I arrived in Lithuania to do some printing or like test prints. I literally my, sp- my stomach exploded in the middle of the night, and I ended up in this hospital. It was I had more luck than brains. The surgeon said, <laughs> "I've got this massive scar on my tummy that looks like a scolopendra, this kind of a creature." Really, but then a uh, centipede, yeah, like a, yeah, like one of these aggressive ones. So I call it. You know, it's 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 my reminder. But b- bizarrely enough, uh, when we finally got to the printing date and I landed in Lithuania, the German publisher was still we were still owed the money for for the tests we had done. And it was costing us a lot of money because no, it's a lot of money like the, for a photographer, for a freelance photographers. But he says, I need 5,000 euros for that day. Mm. Like, where do I get that kind of yeah. cash from? And on the day of the printing of the book in Lithuania, we received that email literally the same morning from the publishers who, in Germany saying, we're really sorry, but we cannot seem to find any record of you ever being here. There's no proof. There's no receipt. So we are very sorry for this lack of professionalism, but we cannot, uh, we will not be charging you any money. And we apologize for this whole palaver. And we thought, well, the book really wanted to be that's published. Ins- yeah, that's insane. It's that a mean, lovely moment. Like you say, even if you don't believe in any kind of uh, woo-woo kind of bullshit, that's you, just, I mean, that's... put this together if you're like, yeah, well, if we want, they want it yeah. to be there, you know, yeah. Lithuanian books. So, so I'm happy with it. Wow. So there's a whole, that's, I love the fact there's a whole story behind behind this this book well hopefully yeah the people who've already got a copy can be smug in the knowledge that they've got a copy but you know if any, anyone else might um, perhaps try and seek a copy out I think I'll release uh, 20, 20 copies at some point with extra prints but uh, I just need to get, get around to it but yeah. yeah there's not much more than that I know you can get them on, on eBay for something like, like you know, stupid 100 or 200 mm. pounds or whatever but um, I will. Yeah, there will be a few more at some point, but okay. generally they're gone. All right, Mihal, thank you so much for ch- for chatting with well, me. Thank you so really much for having it. me. It's, it's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, man. Mm-hmm.